Welcome to Simple Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss my love of horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of a horror in history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. So Hamer and I made it to sunny California. Uh, we came in on Friday night, late Friday night, um, and we've been having a really good time. It's been a much needed vacation for both of us. We've been going through a lot and it's just kind of nice to be able to relax, spend time with family, and just try not to worry about things for at least a week. So I'm just hoping to catch up on sleep, which so far I have. I've actually slept for once and that's kind of nice. So We've gone to, we haven't done much yet. We've just been doing a lot of visiting. Uh, yesterday we went to Dave and Buster's. Today we're going to the beach. Thursday it will be Legoland. So we've been having a lot of fun and trying to keep busy, but also trying to relax at the same time. So it's been a lot of fun for us. We've, we've had a great time. On the first flight from Vermont to Chicago, <laughs> Hamera actually lost a tooth. So that was fun. And then our flight from Chicago to California, we ended up having two rows of the plane to ourselves. So Hamera laid down in one row to sleep and I laid down in the other row to sleep. So it was actually really nice. It was, that's never happened to me before. We've had two rows to ourselves. So that was fun. We both laid down, we both slept. It was great. Um, like I said, we've been having a lot of fun. Uh, also school has ended. So that's a stress that's been off of me for a little bit. We start back up on the 29th, but I'm not worrying about it because the teacher already emailed us and said, not to worry about the textbook, to get the textbook. We're not really going to dive into it until the following week. So I got to order that this week. So I'm really excited about this class too, because it's called Creative Therapies. And we get to actually dive deeper into the different types of therapies there are out there, besides just sitting down in the talking therapies. Um, they're actually like art therapy, play therapy, music therapy, cinema therapy. There's like one about reading books for therapy, doing acting and drama. So we're going to explore a bunch of those for this class. So I'm really excited and I'm really hoping that we get to explore more of like a creative therapy that works for us, which for me is cinema therapy, which is actually, again, horror movies. Horror movies are very cathartic for me. They're very therapeutic for me. I know a lot of people who listen to the show think the same way. It's, you know, horror movies have just kind of been something for us that we've reached out to and we've connected with, and it's always kind of been there for us. And We've related to characters, we've related to, some of us have even related to the monsters. We've all found something within horror movies that connect with us and have found it to be therapeutic, a form of escapism. And I'm really hoping I get to at least dive into that a little more, especially because of the podcast. This is my escapism. This is my therapy. It's very therapeutic for me. So I'm really excited about this class because we get to explore all these different types of therapies more in depth. So again, that starts on the 29th. Um, hopefully. I don't get too overwhelmed because it is fall semester. So the, the weeks are spread out. So summer was only 10 weeks. Fall is 15 weeks. So everything's not crunched into one you know small amount of time. So I'm really hoping this vacation will reset me. I can go back home, get back into work, get back into school, just get back into the swing of things. And that's all I really need is I'm like, I just need to figure things out and focus on how to protect my daughter the best way I can, because that's all I can do since the state's not going to step in and help. It's up to me to do what I can to protect my child. So I'm just 
right now, just we're far enough away that her and I can just relax and have fun. And that's all I'm trying to focus on right now is just focusing on her. We're having a good time. We're far away from Vermont. So anyways, next month, September, I'm going to actually start focusing on female directed horror movies, which again is very exciting for me. I haven't thought of a theme name yet. You know me, I'll by next week, I'll have a theme, but I'm really excited to dive deep into like female directed horror movies. So I got a lot of awesome movies to choose from. I haven't actually chose the movies I'm going to do yet, but I got a huge list of horror movies that are been directed by females. So I'm really excited about this one. So anyways, with that said, let's move on to the last movie for the theme of good boy. That's a good boy with 1987's The Lost Boys, directed by Joel Schumacher, starring Jason Patrick as Michael, Corey Haim as Sam, Diane Wiest as Lucy, Bernard Hughes as Grandpa, Edward Herman as Max, Kiefer Sutherland as David, Jamie Gertz as Star, Corey Feldman as Edgar Frog, Jamison Newlander as Alan Frog, Brooke McCarter as Paul, Billy Worth as Dwayne, and Alex Winter as Marco. So this movie focuses, I think, a lot on horror and history. Again, I know I've said this many times, some horror movies reflect a lot on history, some reflect a lot more on the psychology and mental health aspect, and some have a great balance between the two. I definitely think, actually, no, now that I think about it, I think it has a, a great balance between the two, actually. So there's a lot going on in horror history, but it also touches a lot on um, psychology and mental health. So for horror and history, I would definitely say the adolescent stage of life, like teenagers, um, you know, the whole idea of like corrupting the youth of America. So there's that whole idea of like the teenage stage of development. Um, I would definitely say the AIDS crisis, you know, the whole idea of like you party, you drink, you have sex, um, you're going to die. That whole thing that society was trying to place on people. I think this movie definitely reflects a little on that. And I would definitely say it reflects on the LGBTQ community and how 80s society viewed them and how they were treated in the 80s. Again, I touched on this when I covered uh, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, about how, you know, some of these movies are a staple in time where you can see how the LGBTQ community was treated in the 80s. And I think this movie definitely reflects on that. And again, I'm going to dive deeper into these later on. Psychology and mental health. We got guilt, manipulation, you know, sexuality, budding sexuality, the adolescent stage of life, Erickson's identity versus role confusion. I would say like the whole idea of like family structure, permissive parenting style, you know, nuclear family structure versus divorced family structure. So what is this movie about? Lucy, following her recent divorce, moves in with her father in Santa Carla, California, with her teenage son, Sam and Michael. While exploring the boardwalk one night, Michael gets mixed up with the, quote, wrong crowd when he meets David and his gang. Soon, Michael realizes something's different with these boys, something he can't figure out. But his brother Sam knows what's going on, and with the help of the Frog Brothers, Edgar and Alan, they try to save Michael from his fate of going into total darkness. Will Sam and his buddies save Michael, or will Michael surrender to the darkness within? Okay, moving on to the subgenre. So again, this movie came out in the 80s, so people are going to probably think more like slasher flick or creature feature, or even possibly like gothic horror. But again, I'm going to put this movie under the vampire subgenre. You know, we got sexy vampires in our movie who follow most of the lore. They drink blood, can't go out in sunlight, they can't have garlic. You know, in our movie, we have young teenage vampires who come out at night to party and feed. So I'm going to go over the definition of the vampire subgenre. So vampires. This is the subgenre that features creatures of the night, 
They are the undead who typically cannot go out into the sunlight and tend to only come out at night. In order to survive, they suck the blood of humans, drink the blood of the living. In these movies, there's a lot of lore to the vampires that is ever-evolving as people create their own breed of vampire. Most of the lore includes allergy to silver or garlic, ability to change into bats, and the ability to glamour people. Usually these vampires are desirable and people are drawn to them. They can be sympathetic creatures or downright evil. So first, I'd like to go over our hero dog, Good Boy Nanook. So like Beast from the Hills of Eyes, uh, Nanook isn't really present as much um, as our good boy Thor was in the first movie I went over. So Thor was definitely like the main character in Bad Moon. Nanook is a little more of a side character, but nonetheless, Nanook is still a good boy who deserves to be recognized. He helps out when the vampires come, and he's always, always by Sam's side. So first we're introduced to Nanook towards the beginning after the credits roll in. He's in the back seat with Sam. Lucy's bringing her children to Santa Carla to go live with her dad. And Nanook is always around Sam, and this is when we first see him with Sam. You can tell that Nanook is Sam's companion. Later on, we see Sam reading a horror comic after he actually said he doesn't like horror comics twice. Nanook is, again, right there by his side, keeping an eye on Sam, almost like he knows he doesn't like scary comic books, so he knows he's going to get scared. So he just sits there with him and protects him in case, you know, Sam does get scared from reading this comic book. He's right there, always by Sam's side. The first time we actually see Nanook kind of do anything and attack anybody is after Michael is on his way. Um, in, he's in, like, transition into becoming a vampire. He's home. He's watching Sam because Lucy goes out on a date. Michael tells Sam, you, you need to go take your bath. And we see Sam in the bath, and he's having, like, fun. He's singing, and he's having a good time. Nanook's in the bathroom with him. And we see, like, Michael coming up the stairs. Nanook starts to growl, um, Sam, because he's like going in and out of the water of the tub and he has, you know, the music on, he can't hear him. So when Michael opens the bathroom door, Nanook jumps on top of Michael and Sam didn't see any of this because he was actually under the water and had his eyes closed at this point. So he like hears the commotion and he gets up out of the bath and he's like trying to dry off and he comes down the stairs and he sees Michael and he sees blood. Sam. Michael, what happened? Michael, Nanook. Sam, what about Nanook? What did you do to my dog, you asshole? Michael, nothing. I didn't hurt him. He bit me. This is my blood. Sam, why'd he bite you, Mike? Huh? What'd you do to him? Michael, he was protecting you. Sam, look at your reflection in the mirror. You're a creature of the night, Michael. Just like out of a comic book. You're a vampire, Michael. My own brother. A goddamn shit-sucking vampire. Oh, you wait till mom finds out, buddy. And I say, good boy, Nanook. Good boy. Good job protecting Sam from his brother, Michael. So while Lucy is on her date, Sam gets a call from her um, just because she's checking in to see how they're doing. Nanook is sitting on the bed with him again. Sam, hello? Lucy, Sam, is everything all right? Sam, mom, I think we have to have a real long talk about something. Lucy, what's going on there? Sam, mom? Lucy, Sam, I'm starting to worry. And at this point, we see Michael, he's like floating out of his window and he's holding onto the phone. He's floating by Sam's window. Sam, mom? Lucy, what's that noise? That's not Michael who's screaming like that. Sam, now we should stay calm. Lucy, calm? 
Calm about what? Sam, nothing, nothing. Lucy, listen, who is making that noise? Sam, mom, I can't talk about it on the phone. It's about Michael. Michael, don't listen, mom. He doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what he's saying. And Sam starts to scream. Shut up, Sam. Sam, mom, help. He's coming to get me. Lucy, oh my God. Michael, Sam. Sam, he's gonna kill me. Lucy, honey, I'm coming. Sam, he's flying outside the house. No. So the reason why I was going over the scene is because during the whole scene, um, you have Nanook and he's actually sitting on the bed and he's barking at Michael and he's in like his attack stance on Sam's bed, ready to jump on Michael if Michael comes into the house. So Nanook is ready to attack because he's ready to protect Sam at all costs. And he's just standing there, attack mode, growling and kind of barking at Michael and waiting for Michael to like, you know, be able to come inside so Nanook can attack him. But he's right there ready to protect Sam at all costs. So later on in the movie, this is actually during the finale, the big battle of the movie, when Sam, Michael, and the Frog Brothers come into the house. Um, so they're trying to prepare the house um, against the vampires because they know the vampires are coming to hunt them and get them. Nanook stands up fast um, as they're running into the house, like again, back in the tax stance, he barks at Michael, and Sam tells him to chill, and he actually obeys. So again, Nanook, when it comes to Sam, is always ready to attack because he's always ready to protect Sam. And when the vampires actually approach the house, so they're trying to prepare the house, they're trying to get it ready to attack the vampires, and the vampires are actually starting to approach the house. Nanook is actually tied up outside, and he starts barking and barking and barking. First, he starts to whimper because he's tied up, but then he sees the vampires, and he starts to bark as if he's warning everyone inside of the danger that's coming, you know, that the vampires are actually coming. He's barking like, hey, guys, here they come. And then Sam and Michael actually go outside and they untie Nanook and get him back in the house. So they do save Nanook from the vampires. So the vampires attack the house. Um, one of the vampires, Paul, is upstairs and kind of corners the Frog Brothers. And he starts backing them into the bathroom where they have actually filled the tub full of like holy water and garlic. And they splash water on the vampire's face. He gets angry. And just as Paul is about to attack the Frog Brothers, we see Nanook comes through the bathroom door and just jumps on top of Paul, like just jumps on top of him in attack mode and then pushes him into the tub. So Nanook jumping on top of Paul causes Paul to fall into the tub and he died. So I'm like, good boy, Nanook, good boy for killing that vampire. And after this scene, the Frog Brothers even acknowledge how helpful Nanook was to Sam. Edgar, are you okay? Sam, I nailed one of them downstairs with a bow and arrow. Edgar, all right, Sam. We trashed the one that looked like Twisted Sister. Alan, we totally annihilated his night-stalking ass. Edgar, well, Nanook helped a little. So again, throughout the movie, we see the bond that Sam and Nanook have. Nanook is a good boy. You know, good boy Nanook is always by Sam's side, always there to protect him. And again, like he even attacks Michael, a member of the family that Nanook, you know, is very familiar with and lives with because Nanook knew Michael was a threat to Sam, that Sam was in danger. So Nanook attacked Michael in order to protect Sam. So like I said, Nanook and Sam are companions, you know, that's his, you know, his boy. Nanook look at Sam and is like, that's my boy. So he even protects him against Michael, who lives in the house. Nanook knows and probably grew up with Michael as well. 
But still, Nanook knew Sam was in danger and I have to protect him. You know, Nanook even kills a vampire. Good boy, Nanook. You know, jumps on the vampire, kills him. And it wasn't even Sam that was actually in immediate danger. It was the Frog Brothers. But I think for me, Nanook is smart enough and knew that the vampires were a threat in general and that everyone was in danger and that if everyone was in danger, that means Sam could possibly be hurt if he didn't take that vampire out. So like Nanook is a smart dog. He knew that I have to kill this vampire because Sam's in danger because everyone's in danger. You know, these vampires attacked the home and Nanook was going to have none of that. He's like, nope, not in my house. Not up in here, people. This is my house. Sam lives here. I'm going to protect Sam at all costs. If that means protecting everyone too, you know, I'm protecting everyone. If that means Sam gets protected as well, Nanook's a smart dog and he knew that. So I hope that all makes sense. So now, while I was talking about the last two movies, you know, I said that Thor and Beast, I felt like they were symbolic of like strength and courage. I actually feel that Nanook is more symbolic of family love, the family bond, because Nanook is close to Sam, protects him, loves him unconditionally, same as Lucy and Michael. Lucy loves her children with all her heart and protects them, even willing to become a vampire for Max if it meant saving Sam and Michael. You know, Michael, as the big brother, he loves Sam. He looks out for him and protects him. He loves him. And, of course, Sam loves his mom. You can tell that he's a, quote, mama's boy. And he loves his big brother as well. You know, he even looks out for his brother. You know, even sticking by his side, risking his own life to fight vampires if it means saving Michael. So this is the family that has a great bond. Lucy loves her kids. The brothers love each other. The brothers look out for one another. Lucy is willing to risk her life for her children. And for me, Nanook represents all those things. He is very symbolic of the unconditional love a family has for one another, the unbreakable bond they have. You know, they he wants to look out for them. You know, family wants to look out for you, protect you, stand by your side, even during the hard times. Sticking together no matter what. That unconditional love, that bond you have protecting you, staying by your side through the good times and the bad. And for me, Nanook represents all of that. And he's very symbolic of that. So for me, Nanook is symbolic of family love and the family bond. So again, I say, good boy, Nanook, good boy. And I hope that all makes sense. Next, I'd like to go over all the symbolism and metaphors and how this movie reflects on certain aspects of its time, the 80s as well as reflecting on like the family structure, family systems, and the adolescent stage of life. You know, there's a lot more going on in this movie than like what's on the surface. You know, the, on the surface this is a movie about vampires, but there's so much more going on. So my plan is to go over each topic separately, kind of give an example or two, and then try to go a little more in depth about like what I'm trying to talk about or what I'm trying to say. So first I'd like to talk about how this movie reflects on the fear of death. Vampires can be used as a metaphor for many things, like werewolves can. For this movie, it's focusing on the fear of death, how many people are afraid of dying. I mean, at one point, David even states, you'll never grow old, Michael, and you'll never die. This idea of, like, immortality is appealing to many people. You know, to stay young forever, to never age, it's appealing because many people fear growing old, because growing old means you will die, and many people fear death. Many people fear dying. 
You know, many people want to cheat death, find that fountain of youth, and vampires, especially in our movie, are very symbolic of that kind of mentality. Like, let's cheat death. I want the fountain of youth. I want to be young forever. I don't want to grow old because grow old means I die and I'm afraid of dying. Vampires represent this as a way of saying like, hey, you never grow old and you'll never die and you stay young forever kind of idea. So vampires are very symbolic um, of the fear of death, especially in this movie. Next, I'd like to talk about is how this movie like is, has a huge focus on family in general, like the family structure, the family system. Max in our movie is looking for a mother to complete his family. Sam and Michael have a close bond. Their brothers sticking together through the good times and the bad. Lucy is recently divorced, moving in with her father, trying to hold this family together as they get used to this new life that they're starting to live and adapt to this new way of living. And both Lucy and Max kind of have like the same parenting style. And I'll go over that a little bit later. So like I said, Max is looking for a mother. And when he first meets Lucy, he's very much like in awe of her and taken aback by her. Max, wild kids. Lucy, oh, they're just young. We were that age too once. Only they dress better. Bye-bye. Max, you have a generous nature. I like that in a person. My name's Max. Lucy, I'm Lucy. So later on, Max even admits to Lucy that he was looking for a mother for his boys. Um, Later on in the film, actually just towards the climax, the end of the film, Max is revealed as the head vampire. And he even says, like, I was looking for a mother. And he admits this to Lucy. And I apologize for a minute. This scene is a little bit long. Max, I'm sorry, Lucy. This is all my fault. David and my boys misbehaved. But I told you, boys need a mother. Lucy, Max, what are you talking about? Sam, I knew it. You're the head vampire. Lucy, Sam, don't start this again. Star, you're the secret that David was protecting. Max, mm-hmm. Lucy, but who's this? Alan, but you passed the test. Max, don't ever invite a vampire into your house, you silly boy. It renders you powerless. Sam, did you know that? Edgar, of course. Everyone knows that. Lucy, has everyone gone crazy here? What's the matter with all of you? Max, it was you I was after all along, Lucy. Lucy, what? Max, I knew if I could get Sam and Michael into the family, there was no way you could say no. Lucy, where's Michael? Max, it was all going to be so perfect, Lucy, just like one big happy family, your boys and my boys. So Max is looking to like complete his family. You know, for some reason, he feels like his family is incomplete without a mother. And like I said, he's the head vampire. David and his gang are his family. Those are his boys. As I was thinking about it, I was like, I think this is probably because like this is Max has his mindset of like, I need a mother for my boys to complete this family is because Max is old fashioned. Like he still sees the nuclear family as like the only kind of family. You know, every family needs a mother, a father and children. That's the nuclear family. So Max could be hundreds of years old. Like you know, growing up in the 1700s or the 1800s, you know, where that's all it was, was the nuclear family, you know, or that's how it was looked as like the nuclear family. It's the only family, you know, he could even be from like the forties and fifties, a time when the nuclear family was considered like the only family structure, you know, traditional family values. 
and then lived through the 60s and 70s, watching the idea of this nuclear family fall apart as society started breaking away from these, you know, quote, traditional family values. So what I'm, I hope this all makes sense. So what I'm trying to say is that I feel like Max is trying to complete this family that he has made with David and the boys, even though they're vampires, it's still his boys. They're still his family. He's trying to complete it with a mother because Max in his mind thinks that the only family is a nuclear family, which means the boys need a mother. Cause like I said, he even states, you know, boys need a mother. So that tells me that Max is, you know, old fashioned and that could be old fashioned from like the 1700s or the 1800s or old fashioned from like the forties or fifties, where it was like, you know, the quote traditional family values. And then watching those traditional family, family values break apart from like the sixties and seventies, you know, this is something where he's really focused on like, no, I need this nuclear family. I need this family to be complete. I need a ma. So I think that's why Max has it in his head that I need this nuclear family. I need Lucy to be the mother of my boys is because he's old fashioned. Who knows how old, but I believe that he's old fashioned. I hope that makes sense. So let's move on to Lucy. Lucy moves herself and her sons, Sam and Michael, to Santa Carla to live with her father because she's recently divorced. And we learn this actually towards the beginning when she's talking to her father, who's actually referred to as grandpa. Grandpa, Lucy, you're the only woman I ever knew who didn't improve her situation by getting divorced. Lucy, yeah, I know, but a big legal battle wasn't going to improve anybody's situation. You know, Dad, we've all been through enough. Anyway, I was raised better than that. So Lucy ends up going out on a date with Max, asking Michael to watch Sam and stating that she hasn't even been out on a date in a long time. She was like, I haven't been asked out on a date for a long time and would really like to go. So Lucy's even looking to like get back into that way of, you know, trying to get, you know, get her groove on, I guess. You know, she's trying to move on from this divorce and start looking for a new relationship. And it's very obvious that when she accepts the date from Max, that she's really looking forward to this and she really wants to do this. She really wants to move forward in her life. So Lucy's living her life now. Now she's living her life as a single mom, which I can totally relate to. And she has no money. And Michael even states this right at the beginning of the movie. He's like, Sammy, we're flat broke. So Lucy's trying like her best to keep this family together and adapt to this new way of life. She has no money, has custody of both her boys, has no job. But luckily, she has a father who wants to help her get back on her feet. As people say, it takes a village to raise children, or it takes a village. And this situation that she is in where she has to move back in with her father is usually looked down upon by society, you know, which at times I really don't understand because in my mom's culture, her Native American side, three generations pretty much lived in the house at all times. You know, it was like part of all culture was the grandparents lived with the kids and the grandkids. and it was praised, like, this is how you lived your life. You know, grandparents are there to help with the grandchildren, and grandchildren need to learn from their grandparents. It's very important for them to spend time with their grandparents to learn from them. But during the 80s, and even now, the situation Lucy's in, and myself, to be honest, I'm in the same situation as she is. I don't have the money to move out. I don't have the money to have my own place. I live with my father. Is looked down upon by society and almost shunned. And this movie kind of reflects a little on that because Lucy doesn't seem very happy to move moving in with her father. Like at the beginning of the movie, it definitely is weighing on her, you know, and nor does like the youngest Sam, like he doesn't want to like 
move in with his grandfather either. Like the only person who's kind of understanding of this entire situation that they're in and kind of accepting of the situation is Michael. So like I said, this whole idea of like Lucy now has to adapt to a new way of life because now she's divorced. She's moved into being a single mother. She has no money, has no job, has to move in with her father. And she's not very happy about it because it's looked down upon by society. They're almost shamed for it because how dare you, you know, have to move in with your parent at this age? Like it's looked down upon. And like I said, it's kind of reflected in that when she first moves in, it, she doesn't seem very happy. She's very upset about it because she knows, but she also knows that there's no other way. This is the only way she's going to get back on her feet is to move in with her father. And like I said, this is definitely something I think reflected on in this movie is the whole idea of when people have to, are put in these situations where they have to move back in with their parents. It's looked down upon by society when most of the time it's just a step, you know, it's getting them to step in the right direction. So I hope that all makes sense. Sometimes I go off on a tangent and I apologize for that. But the whole thing I'm trying to get at is Lucy's adapting to this new life as a single mother, using her father, moving in with her father as a way to kind of help her move forward. So before I actually move on to like Michael and Sam's bond, like we, again, focusing on the whole family aspect, I wanted to talk a little bit about parenting styles because Lucy and Max both seem to have the same parenting style, which is called permissive. So there are four parenting styles, authoritarian, permissive, uninvolved, and authoritative. Max and Lucy both seem to be permissive, the laid back parents. Throughout the movie, Max is never with his boys. He never engages with his boys. He kind of just lets them do whatever they want, even referring to them as, quote, wild kids. Lucy's sort of the same, like she doesn't seem to set any rules and tries to be more of a friend with her children rather than a parent. And we see this when uh, Michael comes home one morning. So he's been out all night and he comes home, you know, early in the morning and Lucy's sitting there waiting for him. Lucy, hi. Hey, aren't we friends anymore? Michael, sure. Lucy, sure. Does that mean um we are or um Michael, we are. Lucy, we are. Well then let's act like friends. Let's talk, Michael. Take off your sunglasses, Michael. Look at me. If if there's a girl, Michael, I'm tired, Mom. Lucy, we could talk. Michael, I'm tired. Lucy, we could talk about anything you wanted to talk about. Michael, I have more serious things on my mind than girls in school. Things I'm dealing with you, Lucy. Things I wouldn't understand. So here, like I said, she even refers to her and Michael as friends, like not as mother and son, not really trying to act like a parent. Like I'm not saying she should punish him for being out all night, but at least ask him and let him know that there are rules to be followed and that if he's gonna come home late at night, like there's gonna be consequences to these actions. But I'm not saying that to like barrel in and punish him right away, but to also be laid back and to be like, oh, are we, aren't we friends? We're friends, let's talk, is like the permissive parenting style. So according to the APA, permissive is like, in this parenting style, parents are warm but lax. They fail to set firm limits to monitor children's activities closely or to require appropriately mature behaviors of their children. That's APA. And we see this in both Max and Lucy. So permissive parenting style, like they love their children. They're affectionate, warm, and attentive, but lack any structure. Like they may set rules, but very rarely enforce them, basically to the point where they don't even set rules at all. Their attitude is kind of the quote, kids will be kids attitude, which is from very well family. 
you know, they, again, they try to be more of a friend with their child rather than a parent. And like I said, Lucy's, um, that scene with Lucy and Michael is a very good example of like the permissive parenting style where, you know, they're, she's trying to be his friend. And she even says like, Hey, aren't we friends? Let's talk instead of trying to be a parent. So like I said, Max kind of not really getting involved with his boys' lives or trying to engage them or setting rules, kind of just letting them run around being wild kids, permissive parenting style. Lucy, same way. She doesn't seem to set any rules. She doesn't have any consequences to actions. She's very laid back. You know, and at one point, even she says at one point, like, kids will be kids. And, oh, we were young like them once. Like, she does have that kind of attitude. Again, permissive parenting style. So it was kind of interesting that even though Max is, has a vampire family, Lucy is divorced with her two boys' family. They still have the same parenting style. So moving on to Michael and Sam. And you can definitely tell that these brothers are close. Like, even though Sam does come off as the annoying little brother sometimes, Michael cares about Sam and even takes care of him at times. Like, Michael still loves his brother and is still very protective of him. So there's definitely a close, like, tight bond between the two. And... We definitely see this after the scene where what I'm trying. So we see this like bond and how close they are after the scene where Nanook attacks Michael. Michael even acknowledges that the dog was protecting Sam. And we see this again in a scene right after Sam has like that freak out over the phone when he's talking to his mom and he sees Michael floating outside his window. You know, Michael's screaming for help and asking. He's like, Sammy, help me, Sammy, help me. Sam actually does pull him into the house and they sit down together. Michael, we've got to stick together, Sam. We've got to stick together, bro. Sam, what about mom? Michael, just don't tell her anything. Sam, I don't know, Mike. It's not like getting a D in school or something, you know? Michael, we're going to work this out. I'm going to work this out. You trust me, okay, Sam? Sam, okay. So again, even though... Michael just completely scared Sam by floating out his window to the point he's screaming on the phone with his mom. That's still his brother. He still helped him. He still, you know, kind of saved him by getting him back in the house and then does say like, yes, I'm going to stick with you. We're going to figure this out together. Later on, we see Sam basically like standing with Michael, not leaving his side after he finds out that his brother is a half vampire. Um, the only way to become a full vampire in this movie is you have to make your first kill. Then you fully turn. But Michael right now, since he hasn't killed anyone or drank any blood from anyone, he's still a half vampire. So Sam definitely sticks by his brother and wants to save him and try to figure out a way to turn him human again. And they, uh, Sam and Michael, along with the Frog Brothers, go to the, you know, David and his boys um, lair to try to find out who the head vampire is and try to kill him. Michael, I don't want you going down there. Sam, well, I'm going. Michael, look. This isn't a comic book, Sam. I mean, these guys are brutal killers. Sam, so are the Frog Brothers. Look, who would you rather go down there with you? Them or me? Michael, if something happens down there, I won't have the strength to protect you. Sam, well, this time I'll protect you, bro. Even though you're a vampire, you're still my brother. So what I really like about that short little scene is it's very obvious that you know, Michael is the one who has been taking care of Sam, like taking on the responsibilities of being the older brother, protecting Sam, probably trying to help his mom out in many ways, you know, by taking on this responsibility of helping out with Sam. But here it's switched. You know, Sam really wants to like return this favor. He wants to help his brother. And no matter what, he loves his brother. You know, he loves his brother. 
no matter who or what he is. That's his brother. He's going to fight to protect and save him. Now it's Sam's turn to take the responsibility of protecting Michael. And that's what I like about the scene is it's kind of shifted and you see, and it's still showing that bond between them is that, hey, I don't care that you're a half vampire. You're still my brother. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to help you. We're going to figure this out together. So for me, one of the things um, that was kind of obvious in this movie is that, yes, the brothers are very close, but probably not as close as they were when they were younger. Sam's about 15. Michael's about 18. They're close in age, but in very different places in life. So it looks as by the time we meet them, they're kind of slowly drifting apart. You know, Michael's probably a senior in high school, about to graduate. He's going to go off to college or go off and do something. Sam's still in school. So it seems like they've slowly started drifting apart, even though they're so close, probably not as close as they were when they were little. But Michael becoming a vampire somehow seems like it's strengthened their bond again, like they're becoming close again, like close as they were. Because now Sam is the one, in his mind, he's going to take care of his brother. He's going to help him become human again. Michael becoming a vampire is almost symbolic of him changing, you know, um, moving from adolescent teenager into adulthood, you know, growing up, growing apart from his brother. He's getting older. He wants to do more grown up things, basically like leaving Sam behind. So I think the him becoming a vampire is symbolic of that stage he is in life of, you know, teenager into adulthood. Sam feels like he's being left behind because in a way he is. His brother's moving on to different things. He's going to have different friends and a different life. But Sam then takes on the responsibility of helping his brother because he, no matter what, that's his brother. Whether vampire or not, that's his brother. He's going to help him. He's going to save him. He's going to protect him. He's going to do whatever he can to make his brother human again. And it's kind of symbolic of like Sam accepting that Michael's getting older and that even though they are growing apart in a sense, they're still very close and they still have a bond and they're still brothers no matter what. So. I hope that makes sense. Next, I'd like to go over just quickly about how this movie reflects a little bit on the AIDS crisis. Um, you know, we saw this in many, many slashers, like slasher movies of the 80s. You know, society was basically telling people, you party, do drugs, you drink, have premarital sex, you will die of AIDS. And who died in these slasher films? The ones who partied, drank, did drugs, and had sex. Very symbolic of what was going on at the time. This movie touches on this idea, I would say, probably not as heavily as like the slasher flicks do, but I still think it touches on this fear um, that society was putting on people during the AIDS crisis is the idea of like the quote exchange of fluids, you know, the exchange of blood between vampires. At one point, David even says, it's too late. My blood is in your veins. And Michael replies, so is mine. Very symbolic of this idea, you know, they're exchanging blood this exchange of blood between Michael and David. David gave Michael his blood to start turning him into a vampire. And it's very, it's definitely a metaphor of like the exchange of fluids that causes this infection. So like the exchange of blood is what causes vampirism and the vampirism is representing AIDS, like taking over someone's body. So that's what I'm trying to say. This is how this movie touches a little bit on the AIDS crisis is the exchange of blood being you know, a representation of the exchange of fluids and how society was basically saying, don't do this. If you have sex, you know, you're going to die of AIDS. And in this movie, it's like, if you drink 
blood, if you exchange, you know, the if you have an exchange of blood between one another, you're going to turn into a vampire and this vampirism is going to take over your body and infect you. So I think that in that aspect, this movie definitely touches a little bit on the AIDS crisis. Again, not as heavily as I think like a lot of the slasher films did in the 80s, but I definitely think this specific aspect, again, the exchange of blood between vampires is very symbolic of how people were, how society was putting fear in people um, during the AIDS crisis. I hope that makes sense. Okay, so moving on. Now I'd like to talk about the LGBTQ aspect of this movie. Again, like I mentioned with Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, this movie is a reflection on its time, like what society deemed, quote, okay behavior towards the LGBTQ community. And this movie, I think, reflects on this. You know, the Lost Boys, like our group of vampires, being very symbolic of the LGBTQ community and how people treated them because they were seen as, quote, different. And this is how the LGBTQ community was treated in the 80s. They were treated very poorly, horribly, actually. You know, they were basically shunned and looked at as, you're different, you're not like us, therefore, you know, you can't be with us. Like, society was just absolutely horrible to the LGBTQ community. And I do think this movie definitely reflects on that with our vampire group, our group of vampires being symbolic of the LGBTQ community. So here we have a group of vampires out in Santa Carla who are just being themselves, but they're also looked down upon by society. You know, they're glamorous. They live a rock and roll lifestyle. They dress like they're an 80s rock and roll band and people seem to fear them, not even knowing they're vampires. So there's a lot of times you, you see these boys walking through the crowd and people are afraid of them, but they don't know they're vampires. They're afraid of them because they're seen as different. They're seen as not like us. So on top of that whole idea of like, they're being seen as different, as not like one of us, people are actually fearing these people, this group of boys without even knowing who they are, or even knowing that they're vampires, but not even knowing who they are. On top of that, they're being hunted by the Frog Brothers who don't like them. So the Frog Brothers don't like vampires, therefore they feel like they should eliminate them. They feel like they should hunt them because they don't like them. So let me go over a short scene, then I'll explain a little more of what I'm trying to get at. Alan, notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? Sam, no, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian, Edgar, or a vampire. Sam, are you guys sniffing old newsprint or something? Edgar, you think you really know what's happening around here, don't you? Well, face it, you don't know shit, buddy. Alan, yeah, you think we just work in a comic book store for our folks, huh? Sam, actually, I thought it was a bakery. Edgar, this is just our cover. We're dedicated to a higher purpose. We're fighters for truth, justice, and the American way. So for me, you know, again, the vampires, the Frog Brothers represent society. You know, they're real Americans, you know. As Edgar even says, they fight for truth, justice, in the American way. It's like America. And the vampires represent the LGBTQ community. Our group of vampires are just trying to live their life. They're just being themselves. They're vampires. They're going to drink blood. That's their nature. They're just being who they are and just trying to live their life. But then you have people like the Frog Brothers who want to hunt them down and kill them because they're not like them. They're different. And this is why I think the Frog Brothers represent society, how they looked at the, the LGBTQ community during, you know, again, focusing on this is the 80s, 
and the LGBTQ community being represented in our vampires is because never once do the Frog Brothers say they want to kill them because they're murdering innocent people or because vampires are evil. They literally say they're fighting for a higher purpose and for the American way. That's why I'm like, this is very symbolic of what is going on at the time. The Frog Brothers representing society, our vampires are representing the LGBTQ community. And again, this is how the LGBTQ community were treated in the 80s by 80s society. They just, you know, these are people who just wanted to live their lives free of judgment, just be themselves as everyone should be able to live. But no, 80s society wouldn't have them. The LGBTQ community weren't allowed to be themselves because they were seen as, quote, different and therefore treated horribly, again, horribly by society because they weren't, quote, like them. So again, I hope this all makes sense. Sometimes I feel like I'm ramblings. Maybe I talk too much. Maybe I don't talk enough. You know, so the vampires are symbolic of the LGBTQ community of the 80s. Having to live in the shadows, they're feared, looked down upon, and seen as different, not quote, like us. The Frog Brothers are 80s society. They don't like the vampires because they're different from them. And they serve a, quote, higher purpose, which I think is very symbolic of, quote, a higher power. And the Frog Brothers, again, representing society, you know, fight for truth, justice, and the American way. And these vampires are not part of that mentality, part of the Frog Brothers mentality, not seen as part of, you know, the, quote, American way. Therefore, they must be shunned and treated horribly, quote, hunted down because they do not represent America the way society sees fit. So I hope that makes sense. And, you know, again, Frog Brothers, 80s society, vampires, LGBTQ community, just trying to be themselves. They're looked down upon. They're feared by people who don't even know who they are. They're looked at as, quote, different, not like us. You have the Frog Brothers who fight for a higher power in the American way. And, you know, they're real, true Americans, you know. And they're going to take care of this vampire, you know, problem, you know, and they represent the 80s society. And again, this is how the LGBTQ community was treated, in, especially in the 80s. And I think this movie definitely is very symbolic of that and definitely represents this mindset that the 80s society had against the LGBTQ community. And again, just like I mentioned with Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, about this mentality that 80s society had. We've gotten better since the 80s, but people, we can still do better. Again, I, I hope that all makes sense. So the last thing I'd like to talk about is how this movie is very symbolic of the adolescent stage of life. That awkward stage where you're not really a child anymore, you're still dependent on your parents. So you're kind of not really an adult either. Like you're in that in-between phase, you know, the stage where you feel invincible, you know, Teenagers, okay, so teenagers tend to be fearless, reckless, impulsive, rebellious. They like to stay up all night, often like to party. They like to sleep all day. They want to be independent. They don't really want rules. They don't want to be told what to do. They want to kind of come and go as they please. You know, they want to be treated like adults, even though they're not actually adults yet. Because again, they want to be treated like adults and independent, but they're still very dependent on our on their parents. So again, they want to stay up all night. They want to do whatever they want. And this sounds a little like our group of vampires. And our vampires are teenagers. They're immortal teenagers who never grow up, forever young, quote, never die. And they still, so our group of vampires still act like teenagers. They party, they're wild. They peer pressure their friends, become daredevils, try to get you to be, you know, one of them. You know, I would say join their clique 
even though they, they're called a gang, David and his gang, it's still representing like a clique. If you remember that from high school, the different cliques, I think they're representing a clique. And we see this kind of, you know, the reckless, you know, um, rebellious attitude, peer pressure, want to party, stay up all night kind of like attitude with these like interactions between Michael and David and his group of friends. So when Michael is invited to go hang out with them, you know, with the gang and they abandoned resort home um, with, an, with no adult supervision. Okay. So these group of vampires live in this abandoned resort, no adult supervision. They can come and go as they please. They offer Michael a drink. David, drink some of this, Michael. Be one of us. Michael takes the bottle of, quote, wine. Star, don't. You don't have to, Michael. David, Michael. Star, it's blood. Michael, yeah, sure, blood. And then he does take a drink. So in this little scene, we got peer pressure, something many teens go through. David is pressuring Michael to drink and to be like them. You know, symbolic of teens going through this, come drink with us, you know, drink this booze, be cool like us. So I think the whole idea is like he's peer pressuring Michael to drink this blood, which is really symbolic of like teenagers being peer pressured to drink because when you drink, you're cool like us. You know, that attitude like, come be cool like us, come drink, come get drunk. And I think that's very symbolic in that little scene of some, you know, situations that teenagers do go through. Later on, David and his friends take Michael onto a bridge, um, which is has t uh, train tracks, and each one of them jumps off the bridge. And when Michael looks over, he sees them kind of hanging off the bars. And David says, Michael, Michael Emerson, come on down. And you hear the other guys yelling, come on, Michael, come on, Michael. So Michael reluctantly actually climbs down and joins them hanging off the bars. And you hear the guys go, yay, Michael, yeah. And then the train comes and starts, you know, going over the tracks and it's shaking the bars violently. And then Paul lets go. David, don't be scared, Michael. And then Marco lets go. Dwayne lets go. David again says, Michael, you're one of us. Let go. Michael, onto what? David, you are one of us, Michael. And then David lets go, you know, of the bars. And then eventually Michael lets go. So again, here, we not only have the peer pressure aspect, but the idea that teenagers tend to be daredevils, you know, teenagers like to take risks without even thinking of the consequences. You know, they're hanging on the bars. They let go. They don't even think about how the fall could actually kill them. And they pressure Michael to do the same thing. Even though they're vampires, it's still very symbolic of this reckless, um, rebellious attitude, this daredevil attitude that teenagers sometimes have. So they're not only peer pressuring Michael to, you know, do this reckless act like they are. You know, they're being very, you know, they're being daredevils by, you know, hanging on these bars as the train go by and then letting go. And, you know, these are many things that teenagers go through, you know, again, being daredevils, taking risks without thinking of the consequences, you know, let's drive our cars fast, speed down the highway, not even thinking that we might get into a car accident. We're invincible. Let's jump off the roof into the pool, not even thinking about how we could be seriously injured. You know, nothing can hurt us attitude. And this idea of like peer pressure, being a daredevil, taking risks are all represented, I think, in this um, short scene reflecting on adolescence. So this short scene shows a lot of different situations that teenagers go through and deal with when they're teenagers. So, you know, and I think a lot of that's represented, again, in the short scene. And they're represented throughout the whole movie because, again, this movie is very symbolic of the adolescent stage of life. 
But this one scene, I think, does reflect a lot on adolescence and a lot of the things and situations that teenagers do go through. So adolescent stage of life, according to Erickson, is the stage of identity versus role confusion. Teenagers are trying to figure out who they are, where they fit in in this world. So very well mind states, and this is about um, identity versus role confusion, as they seek to establish a sense of self, teens may experiment with different roles, activities, and behaviors. According to Erickson, this is important to the process of forming a strong identity and developing a sense of direction in life. So this, again, this whole idea of identity versus role confusion, I think this is represented a lot within our character, Michael, because part of identity versus role confusion is the, uh, of this stage is that sexual identity is included in this stage, you know? And why I say, I think Michael is a representation of this is that as you're watching the movie for myself, what I was interpreting is Michael toys, I think with questioning his own identity and his own, I think he's questioning um, his own sexuality as well. Like, does he like Star? Does he wanna be with David? Because at first, he's very attracted to Star. That's how he actually meets David, is that he sees Star, he thinks she's beautiful, she, he follows her around, and that's how he's introduced to David and his gang. But then it's like once he meets David and hangs out with him and his gang, there's kind of this like sexual attraction between Michael and David. They have a lot of like very flirtatious scenes between them. Um, so let me go over a few, a uh, few scenes between Michael and David, and then I'll explain a little bit more of what I'm trying to say to give you guys a better understanding. So when Michael goes to David's lair, Marco brings Chinese food for them um, to eat, you know, to eat. And the conversation between Michael and David is kind of very flirtatious in nature. Like neither one of them is focused on star during this entire conversation. They're literally focused and entwined almost with each other. Like Star is not even on their mind. The two of them like locked eyes and this whole conversation becomes about them and they focus solely on each other. David, guess first. Michael, no, no thanks. David, you don't like rice? Tell me, Michael, how could a billion Chinese people be wrong? Come on. And he hands Michael the rice. Michael takes a bite. How are those maggots? Maggots, Michael. You're eating maggots. How do they taste? Star. Leave them alone. David. Sorry about that. No hard feelings, huh? Michael. No. David. Why don't you try some noodles? Michael. They're worms. David. What do you mean they're worms? Michael. Don't eat. David. They're only noodles, Michael. So then there's another scene where Michael is kind of confronting David about Star because he's trying to find Star. So he's confronting David about it. Michael, where's Star? And then David kind of blows a cigarette smoke in Michael's face. David, take it easy, Michael. Michael, where's Star, David? David, Michael, you ever want to see Star again? You better come with us now. And again, it's a very short scene, but just the way they kind of like lock eyes and David blows the smoke in his face, it's very flirtatious in nature, and it definitely has some kind of like sexual attraction undertones between the two. Like, does David keep going after Star? Like, does he keep looking for Star or does he go off with David? Like, he's literally at a point where like he's asking where Star is. David's like, you know, if you want to find Star, you know, you better come with us. So now he's at a point where it's like, do I go look for Star anyways or do I go with David? And he ends up going off with David and the rest of the boys. And this is actually when um, Michael discovers that they're vampires because David shows him who they really are, takes them to a party, they kill a bunch of people and he shows them that they're vampires. 
So last scene um, is right before David's death. Michael and David are having this huge fight, like they're flying in the air and they're fighting each other, trying to overpower one another. And David says, stop fighting me, Michael. I don't want to kill you. Join us. And Michael says, never. And there, it, again, it's just a short little tiny scene, but something about like the lines between them almost sounds so like something you would say during kind of like a breakup. Again, not exact words, but like the idea is that David really doesn't want to hurt Michael. Like he wants him to be like him. He wants him to join his group. He doesn't want to hurt him. He wants him to join his group of vampires. But the line David says sounds a little bit like he's symbolically, symbolically saying like, we need to stop fighting. I don't want to hurt you, you know, by saying something I'll regret or can you just be with me kind of idea. And Michael screaming like never sounds almost like he's saying I I never loved you or we're breaking up. It's just, again, it's a very quick scene, but it just kind of reminded me a little bit of like someone breaking up. Like it's just the way he says it. Yes, in actuality, in the movie, David's saying, like, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to kill you. I want you to come join us and be one of us, you know, be a vampire like one of us. And Michael's saying, no, I'll never join you. I don't want to be a vampire. But it's also very symbolic of David just being like, hey, I just want you to be with me. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to fight you anymore. Can we just be together? And Michael being like, no, I don't want to be with you. Again, um, I hope that all makes sense. So like, I feel like this movie really reflects on, again, the identity versus role confusion, Erickson's identity versus role confusion within our character of Michael. Um, he's not sure of himself. And I think he is questioning his sexuality within this movie. Does he like Star? Does he like David? Does he want to run off with Star? Does he want to, you know, run to David and join him? Like, I definitely think our character Michael is a huge representation or symbolic of identity versus role confusion, because I really do feel like in this movie, we are watching Michael trying to discover himself, figure out who he is, along with, um, you know, discovering his sexual identity, because I do feel that there's, he likes Star, but he's also almost questioning himself when it comes to David, because there is some kind of sexual attraction between them. They do have very flirtatious scenes together. So I hope that all makes sense, that Michael is a representation of identity versus role confusion, because part of that is sexual identity. And I do think that we do see this in Michael as someone who might be discovering who he is and discovering his own sexuality. So like I said, there's a lot I feel going on within this movie, like than what's on the surface. It's not just a movie about vampires. There's so much more going on beneath. Again, once you peel back the layers, there's a whole lot going on, a lot of representation. There's a lot of symbolism and metaphors for a lot of different things going on within society, reflecting on history, reflecting on psychology and mental health. So it was really fun to kind of watch this movie in a completely on a completely different perspective. Like I definitely caught on to a lot more than I did when I first watched this movie as a kid or even watched it again as a teenager. I definitely saw a lot more going on and it actually made me kind of appreciate the movie a lot more that it's tackling a lot of issues and bringing a lot of these, you know, issues and things going on in society to the surface and bringing it to attention to the viewer. So Again, I, I hope everything I make, I was saying makes sense. So I'm just going to move on to my reviews. Pop Horror states, the title of The Lost Boys is a nod to Peter Pan and The Lost Boys Tribe because they never grow up. There is something about this movie and just how freaking cool it is that makes me feel like I could be a kid forever, watching it with wider eyes and always having a blast doing it. 
I can't believe it has been 35 years since the film's release, but The Lost Boys is timeless and will live on forever, just like it's supposed to. Someone will be writing about The Lost Boys in another 35 years, I'm sure. Horror Geek Life says, You might think I'm kidding when I say this movie is the 80s, but I'm not. I'm telling you, you could Google best mullet in movies, and I guarantee you Kiefer Sutherland or Alex Winter's Blonde Backyard Parties are among the top results. The film has one of the best soundtracks, not scores, of any horror movie ever, with rockin' tunes like Lost in the Shadows by Lou Graham and Cry Little Sister by Gerald McMahon. Faces get ripped off, bodies melt, and people flail around in burn suits. This film offers pretty much every facet of prime 80s practical effects. I know I'm gushing, but seriously, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. And if you have seen it, go watch it. So overall, this movie is a creepy and gruesome, yet fun and entertaining romp into the 80s culture. The clothes, music, and attitude all scream 80s. This movie, is, to me, is a staple in the vampire subgenre, David being one of the most recognizable vampires. This movie took the vampire lore and turned it into sex and rock and roll. Although there aren't many kills, the ones we do see are very violent and gory. Heads are ripped open, bodies explode, and some melt into nothing. But all these kills are essential to the story and not put there for the sake of shock. Nanook, although not present as much in this movie as I'd like to have seen, is still a good boy in my opinion. He's always by Sam's side and protects him from the vampires and even his own brother. Nanook even takes a vampire out, jumping on him full force, knocking him into a tub of holy water. Nanook may not have been in this movie a lot, but he was Sam's best friend, his companion, and he does kick some vampire butt, which makes him a good boy in my book. Good boy, Nanook. Good boy. So if you haven't seen this movie, please stop what you're doing and go watch it. You will not be disappointed. And if you have seen it, stop what you're doing and watch it again and reminisce about the good old days of the 80s. This movie has it all. Rock and rolls, 80s hair, awesome clothes, and an amazing cast. I mean, this movie has a shirtless, oiled-up saxophone player. But that alone, this movie is worth a watch. So I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining me here on Simple Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health and horror movies. Hope you enjoyed the show. Again, thank you for listening. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you.